Well, hey, I wanna welcome you no matter where you are today, wherever you're watching from. I'm just so grateful that you're joining us today. And uh, I wanna offer a special welcome to those of you who might be exploring this community of faith for the first time. If you're, if you're just starting to learn about B4 Church, I especially wanna welcome you to this time together. Uh, I wanna explain something that we do every single week. Um, every time we get together, we like to open up the Bible and we like to look at the scriptures and unpack particular things in the Bible in a way that helps us understand how what God was telling people then applies to our lives today. And so every week we take a big chunk of scripture, we walk through it, and we look for the intersection between those things and our lives today. And that's what we've been doing for the past several weeks in a book in the, in the New Testament called the book of Acts. The book of Acts was written by a guy named Luke, and it actually outlines the beginning of the early church, how it got started, all the events that were taking place, the character of the people, the ups, the downs, all of these things of this church. And, and one of the hopes that we have in doing this, one of the reasons we've been doing this, is that we want to recapture those things in this story that should be a part of our story today. As we look back at the beginning of the early church, we see things that were true about them that we might be able to identify and say, that might not be a part of our experience in the church today, and we need to reclaim that. We need to recapture that. And so we're looking at these things, hoping that they will come to life in this day and age. So um, let me just say up front that every time we do this, it seems like, uh, and, and in this series, every time we've walked through this, there's something really, really relevant for us, like something poignant, like Somehow it is aligned specifically with what's going on in our culture. And I'm just going to tell you that today's text and what we're talking about will not disappoint you. Um, in fact, when I look at the cultural reality that we are in today, I'm just going to tell you that I, I, as I look out at our culture right now, I'm developing what I refer to as a, as a pastoral ache. Um, there, there is a, a, an ache inside of me regarding things I'm just seeing in the world and things I'm even seeing, almost a, a vacancy in the discipleship of Christians even. And so I'm, I'm having this ache rise up inside of me, and then I see this text, and it specifically addresses this ache that I begin, have been beginning to feel about the world that we're living in. And, uh, and, and here's, here's basically it. There is this absence in, in Christian discipleship of certain things that we've lost, we've lost perspective of. And this is going to bring those things, I believe, back to the surface. And, and specifically call us to, to a kind of person we are to be as we live in the world, as we move through the world, as we navigate very complicated days. That's what I believe. Um, there is a way that we are called to carry ourselves. I think it's really important that we talk about that. What we see in the book of Acts is that there is a way we are intended to carry ourselves, things that should be true of us. There are um, perspectives that should buoy us. They should, they should give us the ability to float through circumstances. There are perspectives that should allow us to see through the storm, that to, to navigate unstable times. That There are things that, that should keep us from being emotionally tossed by the wind and the waves. And certainly, there are things that should keep us from being pawns of political purposes in our world today. And so as, as your pastor, let me just say that one of my greatest desires is that these things I'm talking about would be true of you, that we would be the kind of people who see through storms, the kind of people who have stability, the kind of people who know how to navigate complicated times, that we would carry ourselves in a particular way. That's what I hope for. And that's what I think this text brings to us today. So if you have a, if I have a Bible, I want you to open up to Acts chapter 17. And, and as we open that, I just want to say that this whole text centers around one question that I want to introduce to you right now. And it's this. Who is your king? Who is your king? That's a question we're going to wrestle with today. And I hope that we can answer it one way when this is all over. But let's hold that in your mind. Who is your king? 
And so with that, Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse one, we're gonna read through verse nine. It says this. It says, when they had passed through Amphipolis to Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking up some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So, so let me just explain that the Apostle Paul and his companions, they're on their second missionary journey. Last week, we saw their experience in a city called Philippi, which isn't very far from this city, Thessalonica. It's modern-day Thessaloniki. Uh, I prefer Thessalonica because Thessaloniki sounds like the name of a poodle to me when I think about it. But, um, but this is in this region known as Macedonia. And what we're seeing is really a crazy story of how this church begins. I mean, there's a riot and, and there's bribery taking place and, and there's this conflict and there's a mob. In fact, as I was reading it this week, I just sort of looked at it in, in a strange way and not to, not to be funny, but almost ironic. I just thought it looks like our culture right now. There's just so many voices and there's mobs and there's all sorts of confusion. And so looking at this, I just realized this, this has poignancy for us. Now, let me also point out if you're starting a church, this is probably not the best way to go about it. Uh, like going into a city and causing a riot and getting people fighting, you know, people in the streets fighting, that's usually not the way we encourage new churches to get started. So, so you look at this and you go, well, then how in the world did this church survive? Because it actually did. As we look back at church history, this church that started this way, it got traction and it grew and it influenced the world around it. It impacted people around it. And so the question is, how did it prevail? What was their understanding of the gospel and how to move in the world? It, what, what was it about them that made them attractive enough that other people would join them? How did they live in this culture in such a way that the church actually gained an influence? Those are the kind of questions you have to ask when you look at a text like this. Like, how is that made possible? So, so the answer to that, I really believe, is found in the conflict that's happening in verses 6 and then the accusation that's made in verse 7. Before we look clearly at that, let me just summarize and make sure we all understand what's going on here. They're in the city. They're there for three weeks. Paul is reasoning in the synagogue. He's reading from the scriptures. Now, what does that mean when it says he's reasoning from the scriptures? Well, it says that he, he's explaining from the Old Testament that it was necessary for the, for the Christ. So the Christ was this person that all Jews believed was, was, a, was a Messiah. They thought it was a political Messiah, but they believed it was this Messiah that was going to come rescue them. And he's proving from the scriptures and saying, no, if you look back in the Old Testament, it actually says he had to be crucified, die, and then rise again. That's something he's proving to them in the synagogue. And then the reason he's doing this is so that he could connect and say, now you've heard the story of this guy named Jesus who was crucified and died and was resurrected. And he's connecting the dots saying, this Jesus is the one that the Old Testament was describing. And so he's reasoning in the synagogue, proving 
that the Christ would do these things and then connecting Jesus with the Christ. That's what he's doing. And that's where the accusation comes out in verses six and seven. By the way, it isn't a false accusation. Not all accusations are false. I think it's important to remember that. It's actually a true accusation. What is said about these Christians is actually true about these Christians. So the text says in verse five that these Jews, they're, they're jealous and they form a mob with some of the men of the rabble. Um, every time I ever read that, I always feel like the men of the rabble would be a good name for like an 80s punk band, you know, like the men of the rabble, like they got together with the men of the rabble and they got their leather jackets on and their vans, I don't know. But, um, but, but, but the point is that these Jews, they get jealous and they go to the troublemakers. That's actually what the text is saying. They go to the guys that, that like to fight. They go to the people that like controversy, to the gangs in the street, and they form a mob. So you have to pause here for just a second and think about this. You have to capture the irony of this. Here we have these Jews that are so devout to Judaism that they're chasing Christians from city to city. They're, they're, they're trying to punish them, trying to run them out of the towns. They're so devout about their religion. They're, they see these Christians as a, as a threat to their Judaism. These devout Jews are forming an alliance with the wicked men of the rabble in an effort to preserve their pure religion. Does this strike anybody else as ironic? Like you, you think about this and go, wait a second. Since when are the wicked men of the rabble and devout Jews teammates? When did they get on the same team, right? Why would they be together? And would not there be a conflict of interest between these two groups? Uh, as is often the case, the existence of an, of an unusual or, or inconsistent alliance reveals something about the people in those alliances. Like if you have people groups merging, if you have two different groups merging and someone, one of those groups is saying, well, this is the lesser of two evils. It's still evil. The justification or the explanation of an unholy alliance is in itself the revelation that you have departed from your origin as a group. If you are justifying joining this group, then you have left why you were the group that you were to begin with. It doesn't make sense unless there isn't a conflict of interest. I mean, what if, what if both groups were actually after the same thing? I mean, that's a question we can wrestle with. What if they actually, in reality, wanted the same thing? Well, then that would make sense of this scenario. What if the men of the rabble and these devout Jews really aren't that different at all? Let me look again at the, the accusation that's, that's leveled against Paul and his companions. Verse 6, Acts 17 says, When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So here we have this accusation. They've turned the world upside down. That's been the title for our series, built in this whole idea. But, but really what they're saying is this. You've messed with our lives. You've messed with our lives. Things are uncomfortable. You're threatening our security. Our peace is, is potentially leaving us. You're a threat to our, to our power structures. That's really what's happening, isn't it? They're messing with their comfort. They're, they're mixing things up. Which, by the way, when people do those things to us, we get desperate. We do desperate things. We do strange things when we get backed into a corner. Now, isn't it revealing here that these Jews, who, by the way, they are under the, the oppressive rule 
of the Romans, isn't it interesting that even though they're being oppressed by these Romans, they would appeal to Roman law to go against these Christians. Like, they would appeal to Roman sensibilities to get what they wanted. They say they're acting against the decrees of Caesar. Now, why would they say this? What are the grounds on which they would say this? How are Paul's teachings against the decrees of Caesar? Let me just explain something here. Um, it's, It's good for us to realize that the Romans probably up until this point didn't really care that Jesus was being called a god by these people living in, in Jerusalem. That probably didn't bother them because Romans worshipped all sorts of gods. Roman, the Roman Empire encompassed all sorts of lands and all sorts of cultures, and it was sort of this polytheistic environment, and there were all kinds of gods. And so it wouldn't really matter to them, right? But the Jews understood something in the language that was being used around Jesus that the Romans did not use. It was this nuance and this little detail and it, and it is what stirs the pot with the Roman authorities in this Roman ruled province. When, when Paul presents Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, ultimately what he's doing is he's presenting him as the king. So, so he's not just saying he's a god, he's actually saying he's a king. That's what the Messiah is. That's who the Christ is, the king of all kings. Literally, that's what we understand that to mean, the king of all kings. So in reality, what Paul is doing from a Roman perspective is spreading this subversive political message around the Roman Empire. Like regardless of who may be ruling this land, Caesar may call himself the king, but the real king is Jesus. And the Jews understand the significance of this. That's what it means to be the Christ. And so the accusation is true. They are proclaiming something against the decrees of Caesar. He is indeed teaching that somebody other than Caesar is king. But this reveals a truth, a truth that I believe is essential for us to understand as a follower of Jesus and specifically during times like these. This is so unbelievably impactful and important for those of us who are wondering what it looks like to navigate our current realities as a Christian. This is important. To be a Christian is to pledge your allegiance to Jesus as king. That's what it means to be a Christian. When you decide to be a Christian, you are aligning your loyalties to Jesus. You are pledging your allegiance to Jesus. That is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. You're a part of a new people. You're a part of a new nation. You're no longer bound by borders. You're no longer limited by culture. Now you are part of a, of a nation that extends beyond geographies and it crosses cultures and it is not led by a human. It is led by the person of Jesus. That's what we pledge allegiance to as followers of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. Your allegiance changes. And let me just say, when you change your allegiance, yeah, you're going to have some work to do. There are going to be some things that you need to work through. There are going to be some things that need to change. You're going to be replacing other kings in your life. Let me just say this. If you don't change your allegiance, then you will have conflict in your soul. And the things that aren't aligned in your soul, eventually your soul will wither because you haven't aligned your allegiances to Jesus. So I want to talk about the other kings for just a moment. I've titled this message, Three Kings, because I really believe that we really have three choices in this life. We can choose Jesus as our king, or we can choose one of these other two. We can choose ourselves as a king, or we can choose our politics as a king. 
We can have Jesus, we can have ourselves, or we can have the political kings. We can have the political options that are in front of us. Now, I know that may sound overly simplistic, but let me just explain a few things, and then let me start with the self-king. Modern modern values right now are rooted in something that's called expressive individualism. Um, In fact, let me just say that what we call freedom today is not the freedom that my grandfather fought for in the South Pacific. What we call freedom today, what we think of as what what it really means to be free, is actually a philosophy called expressive individualism, and it's pervasive. It's everywhere. And, And it's this idea that all of us have this unique opportunity of realizing our humanity, And then it's important for us to, um, if if I could quote Fleetwood Mac for a moment, we could go our own way. Like everybody has their way and everybody's just got to find their way. Like you've got to be yourself, be true to yourself. And, And you never conform. You never sacrifice for the greater good. You never conform or sacrifice for an outside source. It always has to come from inside. Whatever you do has to be something you decided you wanted or you needed to do. That is expressive individualism. And so ultimately, the highest good in this sort of world, and and this is what you see in our culture today, are three things. Individual freedom, happiness, and self-expression. Think about the reasons that people get upset today. Think about the reasons people riot. All of these things, at some point, we come back to a spot where we say there's something, there's something about individual freedom, about happiness, and about self-expression. And the result of these values is that we as people, we begin to support those groups, we begin to support those powers that will deliver on those desires. So whoever gives me individual freedom, whoever gives me a freedom of self-expression, whoever gives me happiness, offers those types of things, is who I then become loyal to. And I think it's really important right now for us to notice that this is society-wide. This is everywhere. This is in every group. It's not like there's one group of people who are living this out. This philosophy is in every group everywhere. It's just like different sides of the same coin. That's what this is. Every group has been shaped by this philosophy today. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says this, and speaking about this specific thing, he says, there's nothing that makes you more miserable or less interesting than self-absorption. How am I feeling? How am I doing? How are people treating me? Am I proving myself? Am I succeeding? Am I failing? Am I being treated justly? Self-absorption leaves us static. There's nothing more disintegrating. Why do we have wars, class struggle, family breakdown? Why are relationships constantly exploding? It's the darkness of self-centeredness. When we decide to be our own center, our own king, everything falls apart, physically, socially, spiritually, psychologically. So let's get back to our allegiances. When we pledge allegiance to Jesus, there is an alignment that begins to take place that disrupts and even confronts everything that I just described. Let let, let me illustrate it this way. Um, Back in the early 90s, um, I I took a mission trip to Belize. I was going down. There were a a group of immigrants into Belize that didn't speak English. Belize is an English-speaking Central American country. And so um, there was a group of people who invited me and another guy to go down. And we were going to teach English to these immigrants so that they could find work and find jobs in Belize City. And so uh, I remember sitting at the airport. I remember going on this trip. I was sitting with the guy I was going to be traveling with. And I almost immediately knew, um, if I can say this, I knew we weren't going to get along in the first like five minutes. And so what that resulted in, first of all, I was right. We didn't get along. And then secondly, um, I ended up spending a whole bunch of time by myself in Belize City. And so I would go on these walks and I would walk around the town. And there's this one day I was on a walk and 
And I walked to sort of the center of the city where there's a river and um, I saw this. I'm just going to show you a picture of this bridge that I came upon. It's called the Swing Bridge. And so I, I came up to it and the moment that I had come up to it, it actually wasn't connecting the road on either side of of the river. It was actually, you know, the other way in the middle. And so I stood there and they had just turned it. They were just in the process of turning it. And, and what I came to realize is that a couple of times a day, the, this group of men would go out. They had this big tool that they would insert in this certain part of the bridge and they would all begin to turn it and the bridge would move. And then they would let the boats pass by. Now, um, I didn't know how long that was going to take. And so I just kind of hung out. And so they said it was about an hour. And I think in Belize time, that's a very vague thing. And so these guys are just sitting out on the bridge. They're eating lunch and kind of hanging out and waving at people. And meanwhile, boats are going and the traffic starts to pile up on either side of the bridge. And then pretty soon people are kind of waiting and eventually they kind of look around. There's no boats and the, the traffic's bad. And so they go back to the tool and they spin the thing back and it aligns. And now when it aligns, there's all of this congestion that now begins to flow across the bridge. When you and I turn our allegiances to Jesus, it is the same kind of alignment. And suddenly there are things in our life that were congested that now begin to flow because our allegiances are lined up in the direction they were created to be. In the book of Genesis, uh, chapter, chapters one and two, there's this picture that gets painted for us about like what humanity was supposed to be like with God. And it's this beautiful picture. Um, we were created to live in a world where relationships, where our emotions, where our work, where uh, our, our entertainment, where everything was whole. And it was whole because we were connected with God, because God was in the proper position in our life. But when you turn to Genesis chapter 3, it tells a story of us making the decision to remove God from the position of being king, and we place ourselves on the throne. And there's this disintegration that takes place. We've gone the way of self-centeredness, and we've crowned ourselves king. So then we fast forward to Jesus, and we hear him quote something that the people of Israel had been saying for generations, and suddenly it begins to all make sense. When he was asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus quoted the law in the Old Testament, and he said that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And you hear that and you say, okay, well, what is he describing? What is he talking about? He's describing an entire life, an entire being that is coming into alignment with Jesus. It's the undoing of Genesis chapter 3. When you love God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength, you are now placing God back in that position of ultimate. He is the king. You're, you're allowing God to rule your heart. And when God rules your heart, it will influence your, your soul and, and your mind and your strength, your will. That's what the gospel does to us. You know, the first time we hear Jesus, uh, his voice in Mark's gospel, it's when he says, repent and believe. That's the first thing Jesus says. Repent and believe the gospel. I think this is really good for us to realize that the gospel literally means news that brings joy. That's what the gospel is. It's news that brings joy. And um, this word, when it was used by Mark, it had meaning, but it wasn't religious meaning. It wasn't meaning that they had in the church. Um, in fact, it was history that actually defined that word. And that word news that brings great joy literally meant that there was something that had taken a place, something that had happened in history that, that was so dynamic that when the word spread, it just flipped things a different direction. It changed things. So for example, when Greece was invaded by Persia and the Greeks won the great battle of Marathon, they sent heralds 
The other word for heralds that was used in that culture was evangelists. They used sent evangelists to go share the gospel, the good news to the cities that we have fought for you and we have won and now you are no longer slaves, you're free. That's where this word came from in history. And so now Mark uses it, Jesus says it, and it's this announcement, the gospel is an announcement that something has happened in history, something has been done for you that changes your status forever. By the way, right there, you see the difference between Christianity and and all other religious systems or philosophical systems. Because the essence of other religions or systems is advice. They're advice on how to live a certain kind of life. But Christianity is completely different. Christianity is news. It's news that something happened. And that thing that happened changes everything. It changes our hearts, which impacts our souls. And it renews our minds. And it ultimately ultimately begins to focus our strength. And that news, it dethrones the self. When you see the gospel, when you see what what, what Jesus has done, when you receive that news and you hear it, the only thing you can do is worship and love God. And so immediately he becomes the priority. That's why the gospel is so important. So that's the first king we need to unthrone is ourselves. The second, as I said, is our politics. Um, The reference to Jesus as king is very critical and it's very intentional, and here's why. Kings have kingdoms. And the subject of a king lives in a particular kingdom. When the gospel writers, when God himself describes the Messiah as king, it's a very intentional move on his part because your citizenship, your loyalty, your duty is owed to the king and aligned to his kingdom. So when we proclaim Jesus as king, we're acknowledging that we live in his kingdom and that we live according to his kingdom. And by the way, there's a word that describes loyalty to another kingdom or loyalty to another king above that king, and that word is treason. So as subjects of Jesus's kingdom, we have a very clear mandate to live within this world, fully present participants in what's going on around us, but to do so as citizens of his kingdom, which helps make sense of all sorts of other things that Jesus said. I'm going to give you some examples. Matthew chapter 10, verse 15, he said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Or Luke chapter 20, verse 25, he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, all of this seems to reveal that we are, we are a people that are caught between two kingdoms. The the, the earthly ones that we find ourselves physically living in, and then the heavenly one whose reality is often at odds with the earthly rivals. I've often said this, that if you really look at Jesus through the American political lens, he is at times so conservative that liberals will be outraged by him. But then he's so liberal the conservatives are indignant about his behavior. And by the way, he is our king. He is our king, which means the politics of his party 
won't fit into the politics of other kingdoms. They can't. It's impossible. The politics of Jesus are not about the legislating of good and and better laws or, or by voting in godly leaders, but in living such remarkable lives that others feel compelled to engage in the way of Jesus. And, and, and through that, by the way, the church offers a, a political alternative. Let me just say this. The church is our third-party solution in the world today. People want a third party. Well, guess what? The church, we're here. We offer that. When we model mutual participation, when we fight for justice, when we work for peace, when we build healthy marriages and build healthy relationships, when we care, when we serve, when we love, when we do all of those things, we are offering, we are serving up to the world an alternative. We're saying there is another way. There's another way. And by the way, the early church, they understood this. They understood this. And they lived this. How do we know? Well, there was this accusation. These people, they say there's another king. They say there's a king than the one that everybody else is saying exists. And I believe that with a smile, they said, yes, there is. There is another king, and we are members of his kingdom, and we live as subjects to that king. That king is on the throne. And the freedom that that king offers is greater than any freedom that expressive individualism could ever offer us. In reality, that offers us bondage. The freedom that Jesus offers us, it transcends our circumstances. It transcends our economics. It transcends our our politics. It transcends borders. It doesn't matter where you live, who you are. It doesn't matter if your country is rich or poor, first world, third world. There is a freedom in Jesus because we're a part of his kingdom. And when he's on the throne, my joy and my peace, my life, no longer are defined by the political gyrations in the land, the place, the physical place I live. They now are defined by him. They're defined by my citizenship that I have with him. So right now, as the worship team prepares to lead us in one final song, I want you to just consider, who sits on the throne of your life? Is it you? And ultimately, is it you? Are, are you doing these things for you? Or, or, or is, it, is it politics? Are you looking for a political savior the same way the Jews were? I mean, they were looking for the Messiah to be political, and when he wasn't, they were so disappointed. Or is your king the one who looks at you and says, come follow me. Come follow me because I'm the king that you've been looking for all along. So would you join me now? Let's worship together. Let's wrestle with this. And I'll be back in just a moment to offer a benediction.
You know, everything we're talking about today is about the posture of our hearts. It's about where we find our purpose. It's about where we find our meaning. It's where we think we'll find freedom. It's where we think we'll find peace or happiness. And everything we've just sung about is exactly what I've just preached. And that's that we just simply need to lay it all before the Lord and say, here it is. You can have everything. It's all yours. You're the king. I live in your kingdom. And so now as we wrap up, may you be men and women who are bold enough to live in a kingdom that is unseen. May you be free enough to put Jesus on the throne of your life. And may you be available for him to use your life in any way that he sees fit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We love you guys so much. Thanks for hanging out with us during this time. Again, check out our website for lots of ways to get connected and plug in. And we will see you guys hopefully in person really, really soon. See you later.